Hello, my name is Michael McLennan, and welcome to COVID Matters, the podcast produced by COVIDAID. In each episode, we speak to experts, including those with lived experience, about the key issues facing those affected by the pandemic. In the latest episode of COVID Matters, we speak to Anna Lyons and Louise Winter, the founders of Life, Death, Whatever. It's an initiative and a movement that encourages open dialogue about all matters related to death and dying. Their new book, We All Know How This Ends, delves into these issues with honesty and a refreshing perspective which feels much needed in the UK. For that reason, it was great to speak to Anna Louise, discussing their experiences of the impact COVID-19 has had in the funeral industry, grief and end-of-life conversations, as well as finding out more about how we can speak to our families and friends about losing someone in such unexpected circumstances. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. You've been on a journey that's included founding Life, Death, Whatever, and has resulted in your new book, We All Know How This Ends. So it would be great to start by finding out a bit more about your own individual journeys and how you came together. Well, I had a very different career before I started working as a funeral director. Um, I used to work as a creative strategist. So I worked with lots of different brands, coming up with ideas for campaigns, um, and had never even been to a funeral before. And it was when I was 26 that my granddad died and I went to his funeral and started to ask questions about why do we do the funeral in this way? Why do the funeral directors stand like that? Why are they dressed in that um, uniform? Um, what is going on? Why are funerals so expensive? Do we even need to have a funeral? What is the purpose of them? And I think what I could feel from my granddad's funeral was that what we were doing was incredibly important, but that maybe the way that we were doing it had become quite formulaic and soulless and was just part of a conveyor belt of funerals being churned out. So that was how I ended up exploring the world of funerals and ultimately becoming a funeral director. And along the way, thank you, thanks to Twitter, um, I met Anna. Um, very early on, I was looking for people to talk to me about their own funeral, about what they might want and go through a process of discovering what would be important to them and their family and anyone affected by the funeral. I put a shout out on Twitter and Anna got in touch and we have been friends ever since working together. We have run festivals together and lots of events and we have written a book together. So, so that's how it, that's how it all came about. Anna, what about you? (laughs) How you, how you started working in death and dying? My best friend died when I was 17 and I pretty much decided at that moment that I wanted to work at end of life and I wanted to try to make it better for people really. So it's been a very, very long journey um, and I've done all sorts of things within end of life care and palliative care. Uh, And then I think it was about 2013, 2014, I set off on a path to become an end-of-life doula. Um, And so I do that and work with Louise on Life, Death, Whatever. Yeah, and can you tell us a bit more about Life, Death, Whatever? Um, Because it seems to have grown into a movement and I'd be really interested to know about how, how that began and what the journey has been with that started off with the National Trust. Um, we were asked to put together an event at one of their houses in East London. And what went from one event ended up being a month long festival where we took over the house and the garden and the courtyard um, and put on a whole month long um, series of 
workshops, sessions, art installations, all sorts of things happened in that month and we had no budget. <laughs> so that was, um, it was a really challenging experience, but we learnt how to, or, or we, we started to gather together ideas of how people can engage with death and dying without it having to be so alienating. And because we were in a National Trust house, we had this incredible Tudor property where there was so much history and people could come along and they could choose to not engage with death and dying at all and completely ignore the exhibition and just look at the house. Or they could come along and, you know, really engage with um, with what, the events that we had put on in the installations. Um, so it grew from there. So that was back in 2016 um, when... We, we would post things on Instagram and I think we had about 30 followers who were basically our friends um, and <laughs> people didn't really want to engage with us. They were liking our content out of politeness, really. And since then, we've now got, I think we're nearly at 40,000 followers and we engage with, we have lots of followers and we have a huge community that love engaging with our content and really take a lot from it, even though there are sometimes some really difficult things um, posted on there. And along the way, we have found different ways of helping people to engage with death and dying. And we've always tried to do it beautifully and as part of life so that it doesn't have to be this alienating medical kind of thing, or it smells like a nursing home or anything like that. It's been about making it part of life and living so that we can have those conversations as part of our daily lives so that when we're faced with something happening to us later on or someone we love or care about doesn't have to be quite so alienating and frightening in the book i think you speak about embracing death and dying like life and living and i was wondering why you think in the uk we've been not so great at doing that i think death equates to loss you know it doesn't matter how you look at it the death of somebody the end of somebody's life means that they're not physically present with us anymore and that is almost always a difficult thing um, I think that death and dying has been appropriated by the macabre to, an, to a degree that it it's created it's turned it into something else that's turned it into something that you don't want to look at that you don't want to experience because it it seems so untouchable and horrible um, and we've removed it when we because we've medicalized everything you know years and years ago people would die at home they would be at home they would be taken care of at home and then medical science improved dramatically so people would go into hospital and death was almost sort of sanitized in the way that birth was too and I think now we're reclaiming that we're taking it back we're bringing it back into the home we're saying that we want to be a part of it and we want to understand it. When you're thinking about writing the book what was the purpose behind that? I know you've got a manifesto there so it'd be great to know a bit more about that. I think what we really wanted to do was write something that was really relatable, uh, quite engaging, something that wasn't overly medical, that just was a book, a, a, a guidebook, I guess, a handbook of everything that you might go to go through related to death, dying. Um, could be something really simple like the death um, of a friend's father and you want to know how to support your friend. So you can just have a look at the book and um and engage with it on your own terms. It doesn't have to be this sort of overwhelming read that you, you do in one go. Um, and I think our manifesto has come about um, from our individual experiences and coming together to see how, 
both the funeral industry and sort of the end of life care all comes together and sometimes it actually doesn't come together at all and there are lots of gaps in um, in care and communication um, and I think we both had quite unique perspectives in bringing those two things together to be able to say okay this is a different perspective this is about presenting death to younger people as well and um, people who might not be facing it um, because you actually never know when someone is going to have to face it but we wanted to make it so that it could be something that you could find in a beautiful gift shop um, amongst the books about life and yoga and cooking and it wouldn't look out of place um, it's quite a beautiful book it's got a gold ribbon it's um, got lots of gold foil on the front it's um a minty kind of green kind of a peppermint ice cream kind of color so it's very unusual for a book about death and dying and we we just wanted it to be relatable it incorporates your own personal stories and how you've dealt with your own uh, grief and bereavement and it also then has the stories of other people which is something that you've built up through five things it'd be great to know a bit more about five things and and how that's then factored into the book and also how you think there is an importance to telling people's stories or people telling their own stories. I think death and dying can be incredibly isolating. Grief can be incredibly lonely because there's been this sort of wall of silence built around it all. People don't know what normal grief feels like or looks like. And by telling our stories to one another, I think we can feel much less alone. We can know that somebody else is going through something that's the same it can really help to know that somebody understands how difficult something is um, in the doula world we call it bearing witness to someone's pain and having feeling seen and feeling heard because you can't fix things in I think in this situation when somebody's dying or when somebody has died you can't fix it you can't make it better but what you can do is be there and listen and I think that's the power of storytelling. It's it's both healing for the person telling the story and for the person who's listening. I think we always think that it's such a privilege that people share their stories with us. I'm always struck by what people are living with and living through and how remarkable people are. When the pandemic hit, I wondered how that affected both your roles and also how you approach writing the book. So everything, everything changed overnight from a funeral's perspective. We went through this really tricky period before the first lockdown was announced, where we were waiting for the lockdown to be announced. We were seeing that um, numbers of people attending funerals were dropping because people were really scared to go to the funerals people weren't traveling and other countries were introducing restrictions and then the announcement came and I think we were down to 10 people um, during the first lockdown being allowed to attend the funeral and people had often died in really traumatic situations their families hadn't been able to be there for them um, they had died alone. It was often a shock. It was totally unexpected. And the funerals were really challenging. We're used to listening to people and helping them to have the funeral that they want to say goodbye. And instead, we found ourselves having to say no because we were faced with so many restrictions to keep people safe. So no being able to go up to the coffin to touch it, having to really limit the number of people who were there, having to use and rely on webcasts um, to 
allow other people to see what was going on and say goodbye. And it was a big learning curve for everyone. I think one of the most difficult things was not being able to meet people in person. Um, we used to visit people at home a lot um, or they would come to see us and we would have long conversations with them over many cups of tea about the person and what they wanted to do for the funeral and all of that stopped and we had to adapt really quickly. Um, signing the paperwork digitally was a huge thing. The cremation paperwork in particular can be quite tricky. There are some difficult questions in there. And we were suddenly sending that out over email and asking people to fill it in um, digitally and not being able to be there and guide them through the questions, having to do it all on the phone. So it has definitely really changed funerals. I think the biggest change has been the tech capabilities everyone had to adapt overnight crematoria had to make sure they had webcams installed they had to make sure that their internet was working and functioning um, and knowing that they maybe used that technology once or twice a year and suddenly they were having to use it for every single funeral every single day for months and months on end so um it, it has been huge for funerals um and even now things have not gone back to normal. So although restrictions have lifted, I think people are still really cautious. And there has been something about having those smaller, more intimate funerals that some people have really embraced because they didn't feel like they had to put on such a sort of performance um, kind of funeral. They could do something which was really intimate, really small and helped them to say goodbye in their own way. So there have been many learning curves. Um, the book um, was actually due out on April the 20th um, last year. And um, we decided to delay it um, by just under a year. Um, it was a decision that we reached with the publishers, Bloomsbury, uh, because it just didn't quite feel right. And we also needed to change the content. We have been through so much um, since the pandemic began. And actually, a lot of what we, we wrote about, which was about becoming very engaged and really participating, asked lots, lots of questions and doing lots of things, suddenly wasn't possible. A lot of it wasn't legal anymore. Um, so we needed to adapt the content to reflect what people had been through. And also if it continues into the future to take some of those key learnings and insights that have developed over the last 18 months and put it down on paper so that we have some sort of toolbox to go back to, a, a toolkit. So um, if really strict restrictions come back in again, then we we know what helps, what works. My role is incredibly hands-on. I go to people's houses, they come to mine, I go to hospital appointments. And when the pandemic hit, that all changed completely and everything has been on Zoom um, or the phone since. Um, obviously, the people that I work with are incredibly vulnerable, so it's really important that we keep them as safe and as COVID-free as possible. Um, so me kind of going to physically see them just wasn't a good idea anymore and it was really strange really really strange I think I've adapted but I definitely don't think it's the same I think I've really noticed it's so important to physically see somebody a lot of my job is sort of reading between the lines and nuance you know when you're looking at somebody over zoom it's really difficult to see how they are in the same way as it is to be physically present with them when you see somebody regularly on a weekly basis you really notice how they are as well as them telling you how they are all of the kind of physical clues that you would get by being present with somebody, you just don't have the opportunity for those anymore. So I think what it's done is really improved communication um, because people 
have to tell you how they are really in order for me to be able to help or do my job properly whereas it's just very very different from your perspective Anna then obviously there's been a talk to do with the the age of people who've passed away due to COVID-19 um, and I was wondering how that had an effect in the work you, that you did in, in terms of people might have an idea of uh, end of life and how that could be but then obviously there's a an accelerated uh, time scale once somebody contracts COVID. I think so I didn't work with many people who were dying with COVID because they were in hospital and they weren't around people or around their families let alone you know having the opportunity to have extra layers of end of life care support. Um, what I have noticed I've been doing a lot of grief work with people whose family members have died from COVID is how shocking it was for them to experience not having been able to say goodbye not having to not having been able to be there to there's something very beautiful about being able to serve people at the end of their lives in the book you provide advice for supporting people around the issue of grief and I, I was wondering with the concept of traumatic grief when something happens suddenly as has happened with COVID-19 are there pieces of advice that you would think to be kind of helpful for supporting family and friends and people you know who are dealing with these issues? I think it's really important to give it the words um, to really understand that it's not that you're abnormal or um, not coping or anything like that, but that this is really traumatic and really a really difficult thing to go through. And the world is also going through trauma and things are changing on so grief is happening on so many different levels. So by being able to just know and give the words to, okay, this is what I'm experiencing um, is traumatic grief. Um, this was a shock. I didn't know it was coming. Um, we came across it a lot as funeral directors, particularly during the first wave when people were going away in the ambulance because they couldn't breathe properly and they never came home and the family couldn't go with them. They never saw them in hospital and they couldn't actually come to terms with or believe that they were dead. Is that really my person? Is that really my husband in the coffin? Um, and I think there is so much support available. There, If you know where to look, there are places like the Good Grief Trust um, who work as an umbrella organization who can refer people to specialist help. There are grief counselors, there are therapists. I think it's important just to find Find whatever works for you. For some people, that's talking about it, writing about it. For other people, it's being very quiet and becoming quite insular. Um, a friend of mine, Fran Hall, um, her husband died from COVID-19 um, last year. And she has written beautifully about her grief um, following his death um, for the Good Funeral Guide, um, which you can see at goodfuneralguide.co.uk forward slash blog. Um, and it's so touching because it's so raw. She just writes and then publishes it. And I hope that by doing that and being so generous and sharing her grief with the world, it, it helps her as well. There is a section in your book where you talk about what to say when you don't know what to say in terms of supporting a grieving friend. And I think that's something that I personally have been guilty of in the past of just not knowing what to say and not saying <laughs> saying anything so what would your advice be to people also like myself in that regard 
I think it's so difficult to know to know exactly what to say and to get the words right. I think it's good to understand that part of the reason for that is because as a society, we are really diverse. We have lots of different beliefs or no beliefs. Um, so whereas previously or, or in other cultures or communities where everyone has a very set set of rituals and beliefs around death. And so it's much easier to have a sort of stock phrase that you can say that expresses sympathy. Living in a diverse world where lots of people are of no belief makes it really tricky to know exactly what to say. So for example, some people find a lot of comfort if someone says to them, he's in a better place now. Other people are really horrified by that and really upset by it. Um, I've found that it's better to say something than saying nothing at all. And that could just be something as simple as, I'm so sorry to hear about your husband. I really do not know what to say. There are no words, but I want you to know that I love seeing him every morning at the post office. He always had the best smile and sharing a little memory about the person that has died and not being scared of awkwardness or silence or getting it wrong and being prepared to apologise if you do say something which doesn't quite hit the mark. But definitely crossing the road and not saying anything is probably the worst thing that you can do. Thinking about the uh, collective nature, you know, the experience that we've had over the past uh, 16 months now, and I was wondering if you're thinking, you know, from your experiences to do with life, death, whatever, whether there's something to that collective experience that can be healing and, and if we can take positive things from this. Definitely. I think it's been a chance for people to reevaluate their lives, to figure out what's working and also to come together as a community to acknowledge everything that's gone on. Um, whereas when we've been through things before, such as the two world wars, the Spanish flu epidemic, um, the response was to shut down, to not talk about how we felt and just to keep calm and carry on. I think that became such an an important part of the British psyche, this sort of very shut down British um, stiff upper lip kind of thing. Um, and that hasn't happened with COVID. Um, it, just on Instagram alone, there's so much talk about mental health, about getting support, about reaching out, about talking about how you feel, about having a therapist, about mindfulness, meditation, yoga, all that kind of thing is very much in the collective consciousness. And grief as well has been very much in the collective consciousness over the last 18 months. We have used that word to describe not just how we feel after someone has died, but also um, how it feels to lose our jobs, to have opportunities just disappear, to not be able to go away, to have weddings cancelled, all that kind of stuff comes under the umbrella of grief. And I think one positive thing that's come out of this is that we have used the word, we have recognised it for what it is. Finally, are there things in terms of the manifesto in your book and um, certain aspects that you'd uh, like to see happen in the UK as we hopefully emerge from COVID-19? I hope that whatever happens, that the book will open up conversations for people, that it will be a way that people can maybe start to explore how they feel or start to explore where they could get support. I hope that we understand that this support is going to need to be very long term. I don't think we have any idea of the scale of the grief 
that the COVID pandemic is going to bring. I think we're only really at the beginning. I think we don't really have any clue the depth and the breadth of it. And I, if, if our book does anything to help people know that there is support out there, I think that would be a wonderful thing. Thanks so much to Anna and Louise for speaking to us. If you want to find out more about Life, Death, Whatever, then you can find our website at lifedeathwhatever.com. That's lifedeathwhatever.com. And there you can also find details about where to purchase and read or listen to the new book, We All Know How This Ends. If you haven't heard of COVID-Aid, we are the UK's new national charity for all those significantly affected by COVID-19, providing a place where people can find support and also providing them with their voice. You can find us at covidaidcharity.org. That is covidaidcharity.org. And we are on social media channels at covidaidcharity. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back soon. And until then, take care.